Well, good morning. Good morning to those here who braved the cold and made it to in-person service. Good morning to everybody who's watching on Facebook and YouTube from wherever you are. But let's all now join together in opening up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. The year 2017, uh, just four years ago now, ended up being a significant year in relation to the way Americans view the Bible. So in that, it was the first year where, according to a Gallup poll, the number of Americans who believe the Bible is just a collection of fables, kind of mythic stories, and, and, and then a book that provides moral guidance exceeded the number of Americans who believe it is the actual word of God. So in a 250-year history of our country, uh, certainly it was probably heading that way for a long time. But 2017 was the first time that saw the tipping point. And so in that way, it's, there's some significance to it, but it's definitely not a surprise, right? I mean, it's kind of just easy to see and know that far more people might profess to be Christian as kind of a marker of family identity, more so than people who believe and live out their lives as Christians, because for many, the association with Christianity is like the way we often talk about our ethnicities, right? It's a family background and not something that forms and shapes our lives. And, and I'm honestly not saying that as a knock. If that's, you know, somebody that you feel like that has been your story or is currently your story. Um, I, I know I often, you know, growing up would say I, I grew up in a Christian home. And all throughout as a child, I would have just said I'm, I'm a Christian because we're, we're Christians, that's our family. It's just who we are. We're Christians. And even as I grew into a, what I would call an immature, spiritual young adulthood, I probably would still say the same thing. That's all I know. We're Christians because that's who we are. And again, I think many resonate with that, where in this country we often talk about Christianity like we talk about um, being, uh, whether that's a Catholic background or Protestant background, but it's like a family marker, like you're Italian or you're Irish or you're Jamaican or English or Kenyan and, and, and you're Christian. Like the kind of two just go side by side. I, I, I talk about more than I probably should and joke about the fact that I'm Norwegian, right? My, my family descends from um, Norway. My, both my grandparents were born there, but, but me, never been to Norway, Cannot speak the language, not even a couple words. I don't even actually like to eat fish. So I'm pretty sure they would just deny me at the border anyway. And, and yet I know these kind of random isolated facts. I, I know that Norwegian Independence Day is May 17th. But I don't even know who they declared independence from. Right? I don't know. It's like the North Pole. I don't know. I don't know like what had control over them. But a lot of people would say, I'm a Christian, like I often say I'm Norwegian. Well, my family was. I know some isolated facts, but when people talk that in relation to Christianity, they might know isolated facts about the Bible. They might know the Christmas and the Easter and the big stories, but it does very little to impact their everyday lives. And when that happens, and that has certainly happened in our society, the word Christian just gets very confusing. Like if somebody says, I'm a Christian, it often doesn't really even indicate a whole lot about them or really clear a lot of things up when it's more tradition than it is belief. And so in that way, this Gallup poll, I think the statistics are just caught up to what has been true for a long, long time. But I, either way, we know, especially in North Jersey, 
um, probably more than other areas of the country, that identifying as a Christian is becoming uh, less and less advantageous for people. And so this poll might not be that there's been this huge flip in the way people view the Bible, but there's just a more of a boldness to maybe admit what they've always kind of thought. The Bible, it's a bunch of stories, kind of fables, but good moral guidance as opposed to the word of God. So what do we lose if we were to lose faith in the Bible as the word of God? What difference does that make in what we believe? Would it impact the way we live, and if so, how? You know, this last week we started these winter classes on Zoom, and the staff and myself are thrilled that over 125 adults from Grace Church have signed up for one of these three classes that all revolve around the Bible. There's an interest and the desire to know the Bible. We didn't do some great marketing campaign. We didn't do any bait and switch. We just said, these are three classes on the Bible. Choose one. And 125 of you chose one. But why? Why is that important? In short, and this line is going to be on the screen, this is kind of a a thesis statement heading into our passage this morning in the Sermon on the Mount. That God's word doesn't merely serve as the guide to a good life, but it shows and reveals the only way to eternal life. The Bible does not serve as merely a guide to a good life, but it shows and reveals the only way to eternal life. So with that said, let's go to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read verses 17 through 20, our next passage in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven." For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I find it interesting that we move in two consecutive weeks from one of the most familiar and well-known passages in the Sermon on the Mount, what we saw last week, the call on the church to be salt and light to the world, to now what I think is one of the most overlooked, if not neglected, passages. And then if you were to peek ahead in your Bible to to verse 21, which Pastor Gerald will pick up on next week, you get back to some familiar sections on, you know, it goes to anger and lust and divorce. And and again, it's kind of things that we had heard again. But these middle verses often get skipped over. I said at the beginning of this series that, that the world, even outside of devoted Christians, seem to reference and know something about the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, even just in the last couple of months, across various um, non-Christian news outlets or or podcasts or publishers, uh, I've seen a lot of references to the Sermon on the Mount in places like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Huffington Post and different podcast networks. And it's almost always brought up in referencing how Christians should behave and how professing believers maybe of our current day always seem to fall short of that moral righteousness that Jesus spoke about, right? So the outlets love bringing this up, that people who profess to be Christians or don't seem to be living out 
Jesus' own words in the Sermon on the Mount. But I have never seen an outlet talk about verses 17 to 20. I think mainly because someone with little knowledge of the Bible doesn't know what to do with them. They're kind of just confusing, not really sure what Jesus is saying, and yet you cannot understand Jesus' teaching on morality without these verses. We cannot just gloss over them and head into the more familiar, you got to do this, do this, don't do that. Well, if you do that, it means this. And so this morning, I don't know, maybe I'm a little self-conscious about it, but this, this morning's going to be a little more heady, maybe. I mean, like you, you have to think with me here. We have to unpack this and, and encourage us not to just kind of skip over it. But if we think through this, I think it will unlock the rest of this series for us. And so we approach these verses in context to what we've already seen. We, we saw the Beatitudes in verses 3 through 12. Again, well-known verses. Uh, they describe what a true believer looks like. And then last week, verses 13 and 16, it gave the charge to what believers ought to do. Be salt and light. And now in verse 17, Jesus will begin to describe how we can do that. And here's the key, the first key. To do so, he begins by speaking of himself for the first time. If you look down in Matthew 5, notice the progression of Jesus speaking. He starts speaking in the third person in verse 3. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he transitions to second person in verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you, and then you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, to now speaking in first person in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So here's where we need to just camp out for a few minutes this morning. That when we are yearning to learn how we can be salt and light, what do I need to do? It's not a bad question. It's just not the first question. Because when we are tended to ask that question, Jesus now pans the camera on himself. He wants us to fix our eyes on him and think about who we are in him and then live accordingly. There's that phrase again. I'm going to find a way to squeeze it into every single sermon. It's going to be like the Where's Waldo of phrases in a sermon, all right? But I wanted you to hear it in your sleep. Be who you are in Christ and then live accordingly. When we are tempted to ask, what do we need to do? Jesus first tells us, Hear what I, here's what I did. Just let that sink in. Here's what I did. So that's going to form our outline this morning, the work of Christ with number one, Jesus fulfills. Jesus fulfills. Um, at, at this point, I think Jesus knows that the way he began the sermon, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, is nearly the exact opposite of what the Jewish people were expecting in their Messiah. They were awaiting a political Messiah who would rally the Jewish people to rise up, fight the Roman Empire, and free them from Roman rule. So these attributes in the Beatitudes ain't going to cut it. And while this man is of Jewish descent, the thought is he must be doing something new. This must be a new religion that is overthrowing and disconnected from the authoritative Jewish scriptures. And so Jesus, probably knowing that's circulating in people's minds as they hear 
dismantles that thought by saying, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And then he repeats, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. When Jesus says the law and the prophets, he means what we know as the Old Testament. The 39 books, which by Jesus' time was the agreed-upon authoritative text of the Jewish people. It was a canon that had closed 400 years prior to Jesus' time, ending with the book of Malachi. And I don't think this is overstating it, but Jesus saying that he fulfills the Old Testament is one of the most impactful and significant statements in your Bible. Fulfill does not mean destroy, but it does not mean keep either. The Old Testament law will not be destroyed and tossed out by Christ, nor will it be kept by Christ, but it is fulfilled in Christ. And so if you are willing to write in your Bible, if you're one of those people, all right, where you're okay, underline, underline that word, fulfill them in verse 17. If you're on the phone scrolling, highlight, fulfill them. What does it mean that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament? I think there's a lot of ways, but I'm going to share four of them. And was helped greatly by Kent Hughes and his uh, commentary on the Sermon on the Mount here in these four categories. Um, number one, Jesus fulfills the messianic prophecies. Jesus fulfills the messianic prophecies. It is his principal fulfillment that the Old Testament clearly alludes to someone who will come and restore and redeem the Jewish people. And in fact, that prophecy came in just moments after sin entered the world. After Adam and Eve bit the apple and the creative order was fractured, after they were tempted by the serpent in Genesis 3, God pronounces judgment on them, and then he pronounces judgment on the serpent in Genesis 3.15, saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Just moments after the first sin, God said, someone's coming. Someone's coming to pronounce judgment on you. So that's number one. He fulfills the messianic prophecies. Number two, Jesus fulfills the sacrificial system. He fulfills the sacrificial system. Again, Genesis 3, while God judged Adam and Eve and kicked them out of the garden, he shows his first act of grace by giving them clothes. After Adam and Eve sinned, they realized that they were naked and they were ashamed. And they tried to pathetically cover themselves up with leaves. But God covers them with an animal skin. It's the first blood sacrifice in the Bible. It's the first indication of a theme that will be carried forward through the whole Bible. Of God's people being covered by God through a blood sacrifice. And the sacrifice of a spotless lamb. Many of you guys know could be the holiday Passover. It's still celebrated amongst uh, Jewish people today. It's their largest holiday of the year. And it's where Jews celebrate the time in Egypt when God instructed um, 
his people to put the blood of a lamb on the doorposts of their homes. And if they did that, then God would pass over their home and spare that home from death in the 10th plague. Which then, when, after they were freed from Egypt, when Moses instated the law, it be, it, he instated a sacrificial system that prepared them for the coming of Jesus. Jesus, who would be the final sacrifice. Jesus, who was called the Lamb of God. For when he died on the cross and he shed his blood, he satisfied the demands of the law for those who would believe in him. There's more. Number three, Jesus fulfills the obedience to the law. So in order to atone for the sin of the people, Jesus had to be the spotless lamb, meaning he had to be perfect. And so Jesus Christ, fully man and fully God, two natures within one person, is the only one in the history of the world who kept all the commands of the law. Jesus never fell short on a single point. I think we often know this, but have you ever thought about that? Just play that through in your mind. Never a wayward thought, never a stray word about another person, never a wayward action that was unbecoming of him, not once. It's 9.40 in the morning. Like, I've definitely already done it today. And Jesus, his whole life, not once. And then fourth, Jesus fulfills the law in believers through the Holy Spirit. Hang with me here. Jesus fulfills the law in believers through the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul says in Romans 8, that the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That so Jesus not only fulfilled the law, but he applied that fulfillment through the work of the Holy Spirit. Right? That is the Spirit's role in salvation. Right? The Father sends, the Son accomplishes, and then the Spirit applies. The Spirit is the answer to the question of, I understand Jesus died for sins, but how do I know that's true for me? How do I know that's true for me? It's the work of the Spirit applying the work of Christ to you. So I think this list could be way longer, but I'll stop there of just four ways that Jesus fulfills when he says, I have not come to abolish, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And so now the question I hope we're asking is, now why does this matter? This feels like a lecture. Why does it matter? Among other things, it matters because it impacts the way we read and interpret and apply the Old Testament today. That the Old Testament is not just this vast wasteland of stories that we might be familiar with, with Noah and Moses and David and Goliath that are kind of isolated, but we don't know how they connect together. That's not just a collection of stories. It's not just something we can pull a moral tidbit out of for our day. But rather, the whole Old Testament is meant to point us to a person. In his book, Dominion and Dynasty, Stephen Dempster says that the Hebrew Bible, which we refer to as the Old Testament, is a story in search of an ending. If you think about your favorite series of movies, maybe Lord of the Rings or your favorite Netflix show, have you ever got to the end of a season and they ended the season like, that cannot be it. There better be another season here. 
Because that is an awesome story, but that is not the ending. The Old Testament is a story that ends in search of an ending. It's pointing towards something. And in Jesus, it finds its ending. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 1.20, that all the promises of God in Scripture find their yes in him. And because of this statement, which Jesus will reiterate throughout his ministry when he confronts the Pharisees later on, says, you don't even realize that the whole law is about me. Or he tells the two men on the Emmaus Road after he rose from the grave that all the things in scriptures pointed to, led to him. Jesus is telling us any time we read the Old Testament or study it or apply it, it is all done so in light of Jesus Christ. So Pastor Joe and about 60 adults at Grace are doing a Zoom Bible study on Deuteronomy that started this past week. And every lesson in Deuteronomy is incomplete if it does not lead to Jesus. In his book, Jesus on Every Page, it's a good book, good title, Jesus on Every Page, David Murray writes, We do not start at Genesis 1 and work our way forward until we discover where it is all leading. Rather, we first come to Christ, and he directs us to study the Old Testament in light of the gospel. The gospel will interpret the Old Testament by showing us its goal and meaning. Jesus fulfills. Let's keep going. Jesus affirms. Verse 18 again. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So in case there was still any doubt in people's minds that Jesus was maintaining the highest view of Scripture, he doubles down here. He says, until heaven and earth pass away. That's a phrase used 31 times in Matthew's gospel. And it means until the end of the age, not an iota, not a dot, will pass until everything is accomplished. It is worth noting that Jesus never changes nor corrects the Old Testament. What he does do and what he will continue to do in this next section that we'll be going into in the Sermon on the Mount is he will correct wrong interpretations of the Old Testament by the Pharisees. But he never corrects the Old Testament itself. He never refers to them as just stories that are meant to have a moral meaning in the middle of them. He always affirms. He always upholds. He has the highest view of Scripture. And I compare that to what people think about the Old Testament today. Not only in the world or Americans, but within the church. That you often hear that people are just not very much interested in the Old Testament. It's just big. It's confusing. It gets kind of weird. And I just want to focus on the life of Christ. And, and, and there turns into this separation. Sometimes people don't even intend it, but it's the way it comes across. That the Old Testament God, he was an angry God. He, he, he was wrathful. But then you get to New Testament Jesus, and, and he's about peace and love and hope. Let's be more about Jesus. But that is problematic when Jesus himself says the Old Testament is true in every way. 
And while everything else in creation comes and goes, everything else will pass away, God's word will remain. So to reject the Old Testament, I think, is to reject Jesus Christ himself. Or at the very least, to just neglect the Old Testament is to neglect the work of Christ. Because if you only read the Old Testament and not the New Testament, you have this story without an ending. But if you only read the New Testament and not the Old Testament, you have an ending without a story. And so if you toss it out, all we're left with is Jesus as moral teacher. Which is why I think much of our culture just sees Jesus as moral teacher because they've neglected the Old Testament. And now you just have moral commands like within this Sermon on the Mount that are emptied of their power. And I think that's actually more oppressive because they are moral commands from Jesus the teacher that we cannot live out without Jesus the Savior. So before we move on to number three, um, just as an aside, a little aside, have you ever been asked, why do you trust the Bible? I think all too often in the church, I'm guilty of this, that we assume the Bible is trusted instead of explaining why the Bible should be trusted to our youth, to our children rising up, and certainly to our adults that just kind of might know, but they don't know why they know. You want to know the number one reason why I believe that the Bible is the word of God? The number one reason why I think it is completely true and without error. It's not the only reason, but the biggest reason is because Jesus does. Because Jesus affirms the scriptures as the word of God, as pointing to him. That's my biggest reason. All right, we see Jesus fulfills, we saw Jesus affirms, and now we see, number three, Jesus commands. Okay, so here's where it kind of it flips. Here's kind of the hinge of the door. I said at the beginning that Jesus will tell us what to do, but not until he first tells us what he has done. So he fulfills, he affirms, and now he teaches by saying, listen, if anyone relaxes, if anyone decreases or lowers the bar on the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be the least of all. I think he implies there everyone's a teacher. Certain people are called and equipped to teach the word of God and maybe public uh, platforms as preachers and teachers. But every believer is a teacher because you teach by the way you live. Everybody teaches. And so he says, if anyone relaxes these and teaches others to do the same, will be the least of all. But whoever does them and teaches them will be great in the kingdom of heaven. Just like we cannot separate Jesus from the story of the Old Testament, so we also cannot separate our love for Jesus from our obedience to his commands. It's not possible to say, I love Jesus, but I'm not going to listen to what he says. We covered this at length in the book of 1 John, where we um, preached through that epistle in the fall. But our obedience to God's commands is the evidence of, it's the proof of our love for him and our knowledge of him. And so this is the relationship between grace and law. That in the New Testament, Jesus brings in a new covenant of grace. That we are saved by grace, which then empowers us to follow God's law, his commandments. 
right? So we say that often. We're not saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works. The good works, recall from last week, that the world sees, they see your good works, they see our good works as a church, and give glory to our Father in heaven. I think this teaching by Jesus throughout his ministry is probably what inspired the famous question that he'll get in Matthew 22. When a lawyer will come up to him and say, hey teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And you guys know the answer, we say it often. And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But then listen to this last part that often does not get quoted. Listen to what Jesus says. On these two commandments depend what? All the law and the prophets. It's the same phrase from this passage. That the relationship between law and grace is so vital to not only understand the Sermon on the Mount but all of Christianity. If you remember the first week, the first Sunday of the new year, when I was introducing this series, I said there's, there's two wrong ways to view the Sermon on the Mount. The first is all law, no grace. Again, Jesus' teachings, they're just a bunch of moral sayings. Do the best you can. It's a guidebook to a good life, to be a good person. If you do these things, you'll be approved by God at the end of your life. All law, no grace. But the other wrong way is all grace, no law. That all you got to do is believe in Jesus, say the prayer with your parents or at summer camp, walk forward, get dunked underwater, and then you're good. It doesn't matter how you live because you got that card that said you said the prayer. It's all grace, no law. It's the other wrong way to view this sermon. But Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. And in fulfilling it, we are saved by grace through faith in him, which then provides us the power we need to observe and teach the law. Imperfectly, for sure. Progressing over time far slower and with more setbacks than we would like to admit? Absolutely. But he says the greatest commandment, love God, and a second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, and that these two commands is the foundation for the entire law and prophets. He just took the whole Old Testament and placed it on these two commands. Maybe this illustration will help. Uh, Danny Aiken, he's a uh, seminary president down in uh, North Carolina. He wrote a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, and he said, picture the believer in Jesus Christ as a train. All right, hang with me here. Think of your favorite train as a kid or currently. You got that picture in your mind. You are that train. The scripture that contains the law are the train tracks. And then the power of Christ through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the fuel for your train. So the tracks alone show you where to go, but without the fuel of the Spirit of Christ in you, you won't go anywhere. You'll see what you have to do, but you can't get there. But for the believer, our faith in and love for Jesus Christ is the fuel, the energy that propels us, and the scripture are the tracks that show us the way to go.
Number three, Jesus commands. And then lastly, number four, Jesus empowers. Verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus throughout the gospels loves shocking one-liners. Right? He loves just throwing zingers all over the place, and he does it often in the sermon, and he, he knows what's gonna, what punches are going to land. He knows the things he says, or those who are listening who might be drifting off, might hear him say something and go wide-eyed and go, what? The scribes and the Pharisees were the most devout, were the most religious people in all of Israel. They were unbelievably trained. If you wanted to be a scribe, it would begin as a child. Formal training would begin as a child, and you would not be formally ordained until age 40. They were the smartest. They wore distinctive robes. There was a rule that whenever they came into an area, others had to stand. You cannot sit in their presence. They would only answer to rabbi or master. They always had the best seats in the house. And then Pharisees were known as the most devout sect of the Jewish people. And so um, while some scribes were Pharisees, not all Pharisees were scribes. But Pharisees memorized 613 laws. 248 regulations, 365 prohibitions, 613 laws, and they worked to keep those outwardly perfectly and then let everybody know about it so jesus is saying with that context if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven your righteousness must exceed theirs so to the listener's ears it'd be like saying if you want to play in the nba you got to be better than lebron james if you're better than lebron maybe you can make it the reaction would be like that's impossible and that's jesus point and he's going to unpack that again in the coming passages in the sermon. But he's saying the Pharisees are not nearly as righteous as you think they are. It's all external. It's all appearance. From a distance, they look impressive. But the closer you get to their hearts, the less impressive they are. Jesus is always concerned about the heart transforming the internal heart of a person out of which external actions will flow. He doesn't say external actions don't matter, but rather that the external actions will never change the heart. The heart changes the actions. There's a phrase out there, maybe you've heard of it, that says, um, never meet your heroes because they're sure to disappoint you. And we build up these heroes in our minds, and I think we often say this to children, although we know in our celebrity-crazed culture that even adults have heroes, people who they would see, and your heart would start to beat a little bit, and you would, your mouth would get dry, like, what do I say to this person? Like, we all have those people, probably, in our lives, and we build them up based upon external actions we've seen. They're an athlete, they're a singer, an actor. But all too often, if we were to get very close to who that person is, we would be less impressed. Jesus is saying, and we'll continue to say, the Pharisees, 
are not as righteous as they appear. It's all show. But not only were his words here not impossible, they were actually the kindest words he could have ever spoken. For in this statement, he speaks of the impossibility of salvation apart from grace. There is no salvation through obedience. There is no salvation through obedience. There is only salvation through grace. Remember, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So I finish now with how we began. God's word does not merely serve as a guide to a good life. It shows and reveals the only way to eternal life. Friends, do you understand that there is no way but the way of grace through faith in Jesus Christ? Do you know that if you were relying on your obedience and your good works, or if you're nervous as to how you, much you have fallen short of obedience and good works, and, and you're thinking only about your moral behavior in relation to your salvation, do you know that if it's even just a single percent's worth, then it all proves to be worthless? The only way to salvation is to believe in Jesus Christ for what we could never do. Fulfill the law. And our hope is rooted in the fact that he fulfilled the demands of the law and that God provided what God demanded. And because what he did, he gives us righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. That in Christ we're saying that he is mine and I am his and it will be forever. This is what it is to be saved, to be united with him. And then in that salvation, to be truly empowered by his spirit to join the cause of God's kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that because of your grace to us and the sacrifice of your son on our behalf, that we can join in with the community of saints from history past who together are following your final commission before you ascended to heaven, that they, are, they have been making disciples of all nations, and we get to join in that cause. And just as you say in this passage, Lord, in that final commission, you tell us to observe all that he has and you have commanded us. And behold, that you will be with us always to the end of the age. Father, let that sink in. Lord, let us see that when... We ask, what do we need to do? You first told us what you have done for us. And let us live accordingly for your glory. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.